0: Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American Patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Kyle Serafin Show for Thursday, November the 2nd. Today, we're going to be talking to a young woman who seems to have it all pretty well squared away. Young lady named Lily Kate. We're going to be talking about anti-feminism. What in the world is that? I thought everybody wanted to be a feminist. Wasn't that the thing? Apparently, there may be another path. And a general Zer is going to be leading the way. So we're looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. I think you are going to enjoy this conversation as well. Uh, On top of that, we want to say first thanks to our perennial sponsor, Catholic Vote, for doing the great work that they do. Here they are, Catholic Vote. You know them. You love them. And uh, by all means, they support us, support them, America's top advocacy group for faith, family, and freedom. You can sign up for The Loop. It's never late, except when it is, sign up for their email at catholicvote.org. Get that email every morning like I do, and get the know. You'll understand what is going on in this world. We're also very thankful to our friends over at Four Patriots. I think you guys will appreciate this. Made a little promo. We're going to give it some play. Here it comes. All right, you listen to the Kyle Serafin Show so you know that we don't think it's an if, but a when things get bad in this country. And when they get bad, you want to be prepared. One of my good buddies says you got two options. You can prepare or repair. I recommend you prepare and you can go to four. the number four patriots.com slash Kyle. You can check out all of their survival goods, including their best-selling survival food. There is a thing called the rule of threes in the military. It's a survival concept. It says that you can go for three weeks without food, although I don't recommend it. You can go for three days without water, although that gets really rough. You can go for three minutes without air, but you can't go for three seconds without hope. Failure to plan is planning to fail. Don't be that guy that doesn't know what to do if the lights go out and you don't have a grocery store to go to. That's not where the food comes from. It should come from your pantry. They sent me the 72-hour food pack. We cooked some up. Kids ate it. No problem. This is a victory. Get it done by going to 4 kyle You could throw something in your truck, in your van, in your minivan. Keep food where you are in case you can't get to where your food is. This is a real simple problem to solve. It's easy. You throw a couple dollars at it, and you can forget about it. They're guaranteed for 25 years. That's an awful lot of time for you to be solving this problem. Go ahead and check it out. 4 com slash Kyle, or use promo code Kyle to go to forpatriots.com. Yo, I like that jam. What do you guys think? Is that good? It's got me bopping. I'm glad I made that for you. I also like wearing a t-shirt instead of a jacket, but that's okay. Uh, we dressed up nice because we were talking to a very nice person. And here we go. Let's do an interview with Lily Kate. Ladies and gentlemen, Put your hands together. No, don't put your hands together because I won't hear you. We are doing this digitally. We are streaming it, but you are going to hear now from your favorite anti-feminist. What is an anti-feminist? We're going to have to talk about that. We are bringing on the one and only Lily Kate. Lily Kate, welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show.
1: Hi, hi. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're smiling now, but this is going to be the most difficult thing you do today. What do you think?
1: I mean, I just worked out, so we'll have to see. Mm.
0: All right, let's work out your brain. Okay, luckily for you, you're gonna be the expert on basically everything I asked you. So you've got that in your corner. So I wanna know, where is Lily Kate, where are you from?
1: Houston, Texas.
0: And do you tell people everywhere you go that you're a Texan?
1: I think it should be in the energy that radiates from me, but if they don't pick up on that, I always make sure to let them know for sure.
0: Outstanding, okay. What is it that is unique about Texas that nobody else understands if they're not from Texas. What is the Texas energy that radiates?
1: Texas energy is you have a specific independence that you're. You have a level of self-assuredness. You have a level of creativity. But you know they call us the Lone Star State, and really that's exactly how it is. We have a bunch of independently minded uh, people who love their faith, love their country, but primarily love their state. Uh, We always got to let you know that everything is bigger in Texas. And while that is very true, um, we do have a very deep swamp. So, you know, hopefully we'll be combating more against that as time goes on. But yeah, Texas is really just an independent spirit. And a lot of times people are Texans. They just don't know it yet. And when they move here, they finally find a place that they're comfortable in, that they understand. It's just like Zach Bryan, you know, keep heading south because they let you play your music really darn loud. And essentially, that's what Texas is. We're a big, welcoming, independent place.
0: I've never heard someone say that a lot of people are Texans, but they don't know it yet. That's a great line,
1: thank you.
0: my I think my wife was a Texan and didn't know it. She went to the University of Texas from New York, and she's a naturalized American because of it. What do you think of that?
1: I think that since my boyfriend's an Aggie, I can't support that decision.
0: You're not even involved in that conflict.
1: <laughs> no, but I have to be loyal. You know, they've done good They've done well for him. although he does want to go to u t eventually for his law school. so I don't know how that's going to work.
0: He's going to have to get another ring.
1: <laughs> well, you wear the a ring. A specific ring first, but
0: yeah, let's talk about that in a minute. Let's talk about growing up in Houston. Um, what year were you born? Two thousand two. My goodness. Okay, two thousand two, which makes you about twenty and change, twenty one.
1: Twenty one. Yes.
0: That's a big. That's a big year. So I don't want to short you on that one. Tell me. Tell me about being born in Houston in two thousand two. What was life like as a kid? How did you see America? Uh, what was your family like?
1: Yeah. Well, I have a very unique upbringing. I was born in Houston, like in the city. And when I was like maybe three years old, my parents moved out to the outskirts of Houston. We moved onto some land and they actually decided to homeschool all of the kids in our family. So I have five siblings and grew up homeschooled, uh, Christian, classically educated. My dad is a lawyer. My mom is an Irish immigrant and was the best homeschool mom you could ever ask for. And my dad was also a pastor at the church that I grew up in for about 12 years, the first 12 years of uh, my life. And so I had an extremely stable upbringing, uh, an upbringing that both parents were very much involved in our daily life and our schedules and our education in taking us to all the classes and all the places that we needed to go. And um, I really attribute a lot of the the intellectual pursuits I have and the love for pursuing those kinds of things to my dad. My dad has seven degrees and he's working on his eighth. He wants to get to 10 before his time is up on this earth. And so we've just been really blessed to have a family of lifelong learners and a family that's dedicated not only to building culture, but spreading the gospel as our primary focus.
0: I think we can appreciate that. And you said eight kids. Where do you fall in the birth order there?
1: uh, Six kids. So
0: Oh, six kids. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry if I I may have said something wrong, but yeah. So I am the second oldest, but I'm the oldest girl. So I have an older brother and then four younger siblings.
0: And how young is the youngest?
1: He's 10?
0: 10. Oh, you should know that one.
1: I know, I just start losing count because every year magically they all get older. And I just (laughs) can't even come up.
0: That sounds like a parent's excuse. I have that, uh, I looked over when my my daughter just passed her swim test at the YMCA and the guy's like, how old is she? And I was like, yeah, how old are you? Yeah. Because I know she's five or six, but she's six. I should know that. Right. She's almost seven. Right. uh, Yeah, they get older every year. That's going to be a challenge for your whole life, it turns out. A lifelong challenge. (laughs)
1: Looking forward to it.
0: Now, what does your brother do? He's older than you. How much older?
1: He is actually 17 months older than me, and he went to Baylor University when he was 16 years old, and he was a student- Internal or external vice president, one or the other. And he's now in Colorado and just got married and doing his working. And um, he also just became the national spikeball champion of the United States a couple of weeks ago. So we're very proud of him.
0: What is spikeball?
1: Spikeball is a new sport that's emerging from college campuses. It's essentially like where you play tennis, but there's a small round net in the middle that's elevated like eight inches off the ground. And you have teams of two. And you I each of y'all stand around the the net and like hit the ball. I, I really don't know all the rules to be honest, but he's like kind of one of the best in the world at it, officially now.
0: He's officially one of the best in the world at a sport that we didn't know existed until you just told us, but now we're excited.
1: <laughs> Listen, it's going to be you're going to hear about it. And it's it's a lot bigger than I guess you would think, but you've probably been removed from the college campus um System for a long time, but I, I'm saying let's. She just made an
0: age it. joke. If anyone's tracking that, she just said I'm old. I just heard it.
1: <laughs> I laced it in a nice compliment, but I'll say 10 years, and it'll be in the Olympics.
0: Really? What about pickleball? Is that going to take over too?
1: Could be. I don't know. I only mentioned you know- spikeball and gymnastics.
0: Okay, fair enough. Did you do sports growing up?
1: I I consider gymnastics a sport. Yeah, so I for did sure. gymnastics, and then I had the Tommy Johns. Uh, famous surgery on my elbow, moved to dancing and then broke my foot dancing. And so I decided, you know what, maybe this isn't for me. So I started pursuing um, academic speech and debate and then built a YouTube channel and then switched to politics. And so here I am now.
0: (laughs) Now, one of the things that people will um, detract from homeschoolers, my kids are homeschooler now too, but I went to, I went to traditional schools. People always used to say when I was growing up that homeschoolers end up weird and antisocial. You don't seem to be those things. Tell me about that
1: that's such a common stereotype. And to be honest, I've met quite a few of those types who really only their only social interaction were like the chickens on the farm. And while we love and appreciate those people, and we want to help them in every way possible. um, I think assuming that you're just going to plop a kid into public school and they're going to be they're going to come out the other end well socialized is kind of a really big assumption and a big risk the type of homeschooling that we did was we had a super big community the place specifically where we live in Montgomery County is known for being the homeschooling heaven of Texas and so pretty much every other person is homeschooled there's a lot of homeschool churches co-ops and things like that so lots of resources here to be able to have a really you know wholesome and well-rounded homeschool education but we had to go out and make our relationships intentional we had to really curate friendships um ourselves it took a lot of active work we our house was like the big party house too and having so many siblings we were always having more people over so really while that is a stereotype that we've run into i find that a lot of homeschoolers are actually better socialized because they can talk to adults, they can hold real conversations, they have things to add to conversations because generally I think the art of conversation has been completely lost. We've become a generation of people who really only know how to react to things. It's almost like when we talk to people, all we know how to do is like, like or comment. And that's pretty much all that we can add to conversations anymore, especially you see this in Generation Z. And so I find that homeschoolers are much more engaging in conversation and better socialized in that way because we've had to be so intentional about our relationships
0: i think that's a good interesting idea do you know that daniel tosh supposedly was homeschooled as well the comedian
1: oh i didn't know that but that's that's good to know
0: maybe that's why he's so snarky he's got some pretty good you think
1: could be that or he's just a great writer. <laughs>
0: I think he's a great writer as well. All right. So did your parents follow a curriculum? I think that's the other thing. My, my wife went out and found some curriculums. Did they follow a specific curriculum? Were they making it up of their own? You got a dad with a bunch of degrees. He probably could figure it out. But how did that work out?
1: yeah so at the beginning my parents essentially went to a bunch of like homeschool conferences which they truly do have those and they shopped around at all these different places that had different curriculums for different subjects so the people we took math from were different than the people we learned history from or different than the people we learned grammar from and they essentially just picked uh pick and picked and choose whatever they uh decided what they wanted to what they wanted to pursue. And then later in our education, they put us into like a co-op who that was a classical education. So we were able to really, instead of learning the basics of math and science and prepping for SATs, they would bring us in and say, here's a Bible, here's a current events book, or here's a current event that's happening. You have five minutes to make a speech, go. And we were graded on those types of things, how well we debated, defended our arguments, um, how well we discussed, how well we gave speeches, as opposed to traditional STEM activities. And so that was really the, the part of my high school education that was taken out of my parents' hand, but they definitely laid the foundation with the curriculums they chose.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you've described yourself as an anti-feminist. What are the expectations when you were growing up? What were the expectations and were they different for, for boys and girls in your family?
1: No. I, well, the expectations for me were and still are uh, to choose well when I get married and to be a Christian and really to just pursue what makes me happy and fulfilled and you know outside of having a beautiful and good marriage and also being a christian and so really the expectation from my parents has been do what you are filled by but also don't forget about the things that really matter which are family and faith and so essentially that's been the expectation for all of my siblings um, we've all been really lucky because my dad's motto is money into memories. And so we spend, he spends most of his money on us, uh, making sure that we're taken care of, but also that we have been able to travel the world and pursue things that we've wanted to. Uh, we've never had a lack, which has been just so wonderful. And I set, us, set all of uh, my siblings up for success in completely different areas, completely different industries. So, yeah, the expectation really is take your face seriously. Marry well, meaning a good Christian person, uh, and then appreciate family, and just then pursue. On top of that, whatever makes you happy and fulfilled.
0: I didn't hear that you had to be very successful in a particular career. There's none of the lawyer, the doctor thing that I kind of grew up with in the in the '80s, and a lot of the sort of the Gen Xers remember that was the success. You know, if your kid was a lawyer or a doctor, they win. Okay. Um, was there any push for that? Did you guys see that? Were you seeing your colleagues that had that sort of ideas and? Um... You know, did you guys push back at all?
1: I, I think my parents have an assuredness that all their kids are going to be sort of successful in their own ways. And so my parents never specifically pushed that onto us. I think the only things that my parents pushed was, Hey, if you're a guy, you should probably go to college because as it's looking, uh, none of the girls in our family are going to go to college. Cause I started my own business. My sister, Laura is um, going to be a Broadway dancer and hopefully a Rockette one day. And then my other sister, Annie is, um, a uh, fashion lifestyle vlogging YouTuber who has almost a million subscribers. So we're all kind of trying to be successful in our own way. Um, The expectation for my peers, I would say there were definitely, you know, some families who the dad did this career and the son must do this career and the daughter must also also follow suit. But my parents we're never about forcing us to do anything because maybe it's just like the British Islesness and the rebellious Scottish fighting Irish that we have in us but they knew that they couldn't exactly make us into who they wanted us to be all they could do was guide and allow us to choose what we wanted to do and they would um be our like assistance and our support system along the way so the approach that my parents took was very much They can guide, they can lead, and we will make sure that they're maintaining good morals. Um, They're still learning how to read. They're still learning how to write. And we'll help them accomplish whatever they need to. And we'll be there every step of the way.
0: All right. Fair enough. Let's talk about feminism a little bit, shall we? That's what you, that's kind of where you made your bones. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: What is feminism today?
1: (sighs) There are lots of people who would say it's a movement about equality and achieving equality. That's not true. Feminism today has become a movement that is focused on female domination over men and eradication of any perceived, meaning not real, uh, male hierarchy in any institution or in any place of power. So it's essentially a Marxist organization uh ideology that ties a woman's value to money.
0: And is that good for women?
1: That is not good for women.
0: <laughs> Tell me some of the downfalls. What do you see from your end? Because you're you're pretty young. There's a lot of people in uh, probably in my audience that were driven to go to work. They were driven to be successful in careers, whatever that means. And you know the definition of what was successful for women and what we were going to support as a society has morphed dramatically, even in my 40 years on the planet. So I'm curious how you see it.
1: How I see defining women's success or what are the pitfalls of feminism
0: yeah the pitfalls what is it what is it kind of changed into for them
1: got it yeah so well i guess we need to start with where marxism was basically the birth of feminism so out of the french revolution like so many other bad ideas that's where all the bad ideas in the world came from um there was this group of women middle class women who were very unsatisfied with the lives that they had and they decided huh let's start having a thought revolution and start just putting ideas into women's minds that we are being treated badly, we are oppressed, like we are all the things that uh, we want to claim the victim to. And essentially with that complaining mindset, they found Marxism and decided, huh, I guess all men are oppressing all women uh, everywhere. And they kind of set up feminism within the framework of Marxism, which was men are oppressors, women are oppressed, men hold the power, they're actively trying to take away the power from women. And so essentially what that turned into was the pursuit of achieving equality for everyone. But then shortly after achieving that it morphed into, okay, well, we need to keep going with this. So let's have women start dominating men. And so the pitfalls of thinking that way is you get a bunch of women who are trying to not empower women or empower themselves, but to be and compete with men because essentially from the beginning, feminism asked the question, why are women not making as much money as men? Let's just take the most blatant example that they they always like to bring up the wage gap, right? Mm -hmm. And they say, well, instead of how can we allow women to make more money. It's been, okay, well, how can women compete with men to just beat men at the game that they play? So recently I posted a video saying that the question has never been, what can we do to empower women with feminism? It's what can we do to compete with men or make women more like men? So the pitfalls of that, I think are pretty obvious. If you're a woman and you're trying to be masculine, or you're trying to be a man, or you're trying to compete with a man in an arena that is has traditionally been an arena that only men compete in, one, you're not going to do that well. You're not going to compete well. You're not going to be fulfilled and happy. And in fact, you're going to end up a lot of times alone and lonely when you're in that arena because you're a woman competing against a bunch of men in a a, a way that you think you need to compete against a bunch of men. So the pitfalls of that are why would a woman try and do something that a man uh, should do
0: so women came up with this in the French Revolution, and then how did it morph into the United States? What was the sort of the the um the foothold that it took here?
1: That's a great question. Oh, this is like such a fun topic to talk about so essentially, after the French Revolution and of course you had a mass migration of people coming over, and then you had the rise of real academia and the idea of let's just you know, have all of the crazy radical leftist ideas. Let's have them boiling in academia, and then we'll start talking to in people's ears about what society should look like and what, why Marxism is good and why this way of thinking is good. And so kind of a couple things were happening at the same time after the French Revolution. Um, so you had the birth of real academia in the West generally, but you also had urbanization and kind of the industrial revolution that happened, which for the first time, took the economy away from the household. So before this, for all of human history, the economy has been, what can a household produce? And it was based first and foremost around the house and the family. That was the basic unit. Um, but as you have cities start cropping up and people actually going into work and you have factories and you have efficiency becoming the main goal of a capitalist society, you see that, since men traditionally are more fit to go work and don't have the, quote unquote, like the feminists like to call it, burden of childcare, men would go into the cities and do the work and then either come back out or the whole family would move into the city. And this is, um, talked about in depth in this book, Feminism Against Progress, an excellent book, definitely should, I definitely recommend it if you're in for an academic study. But, um, so women started for the first time asking the question, well, Why am I not allowed to, quote unquote, participate in society? Because public and private life had been split because of the Industrial Revolution and where um, urbanization and the use of factories and the de emphasis of the family was going. So you have academia pushing these ideas of women's liberation and women's domination, and actually, let's frame feminism as a Marxist idea. And then you had the economy start changing. Um, and you had all all the, the ways that people were able to make money, uh, completely changing and being more emphasized on individual productivity as opposed to the family's productivity. And then you had this societal wide split of public and private life and women often in like after the industrial revolution and as it was continuing into the 1900s you had a lot of women who were saying i don't know if i necessarily like this new way that the economy is formed so you have all three of those things happening at once and that's really where the idea of feminism started springing up and so feminism used to be an answer to an economic or trying to be that is an answer to an economic question, to a legal question, uh, to a social question, to a political question, and also to a biological question. Unfortunately, now you have the legal questions answered, which is, yeah, everyone can vote. Yeah, you can't get paid less because you're a woman. Um, you know, you can't be discriminated against because of your sex, but Feminism, unfortunately, hasn't been able to answer the biological question, which is why are there differences between men and women? And now feminism's primary goal is to erase the differences between men and women. So a lot of times it sounds like I'm trying to just like put women back in the home permanently, repeal the 19th, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to help women understand that the way that the world has existed for like all of human history has not been focused on the individual. It's been focused on the family. And feminism had some good things that it helped accomplish. They're not responsible for all the accomplishments. Um, we can go into that in a little bit a little bit later. but, um, and then feminism just kept going and has really turned into something sour, that is anti-woman, that is inherently extremely Marxist, and is really just destructive for the feminine side of women, which should never be discounted,
0: so one of the things my wife says who thinks about these kind of things all the time, this is something that's probably more fascinating to her in a lot of ways. She says that current feminism is essentially internalized misogyny. <laughs> And and it essentially has taken on masculine roles and pushed them on women and made women compete as men. It, mm-hmm. it sounds like you guys would probably be in agreement on that. Do you have any sort of disagreements on that uh, idea?
1: No, I mean, your wife is exactly right. And she sounds amazing. Uh, Lena Gordon said the nuclear family must be destroyed and people must find a better way of living together. Robin Morgan actually said, I feel that man-hating is an honorable and viable political act that the oppressed have the right to class hatred against the class that is oppressing them. And actually, this is a fun one. Sally Miller Gearhart had a couple pages in this essay called the future if there was if one is female she said the proportion of men must be reduced to and maintain approximately 10 percent of the human race and so <laughs> while i agree with your wife's sentiment that yes it's become this internalized completely this internalized misogyny against men trying to replace men in any hierarchy in any structure to tear down the structures that we have There's actually something that takes it a little farther where you're like, oh no, these women want to hate men and destroy men at every chance that they get.
0: You think any of them are happy?
1: Oh, of course not. My favorite example of this, and maybe you think I'm a little gruesome for thinking this is ironic, but Shulamith Firestone was a radical feminist thinker in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and she absolutely hated the nuclear family. In fact, she said that the revolutionary or utopian goal of feminism was to, oh no, that was Kate Millett. Shulamith Firestone said is it's uh, the nuclear family is the most neurotic lifestyle that we've ever developed and we need to completely abolish it and it means possible.
0: Who's gonna Um, raise the kids?
1: Right, well, here's how her story ended. She froze and starved to death in her own apartment and people found her a month later because they started smelling that her body was decaying. And she had no friends, really. She had no family. And she was a super radical feminist that rejected marriage, that rejected family, that hated children, and that spent all of her life trying to just raise this ruckus about how women are oppressed. And so I always like to bring that up because that is the, I mean, while that is an extreme example, you don't want to go down a path where you are man-hating, you are family-hating, you are life-hating, because there is a chance that you could end up like that, that no one, you have nobody close to you, nobody cares about you, until they're starting to smell your rotting dead body through the walls of your apartment.
0: You want to know the sad irony is, is that it was a man that broke in that door to go in and get her body out. It was probably a man or several men that carried her out of there because that's that's who does those jobs. I'd say that as someone who's worked as a paramedic, has worked in law enforcement and has had to recover dead bodies. It's not a fun game, but I also would never wish it on my wife or my daughters. I don't want that for them. Um, It's a burden that I, I would take on. There's something I want to kind of double back to because um. I want to muse with you a little bit on this. Yeah. The dismantling of the nuclear family and that it happened a lot during the industrial revolution when we changed the nature of work. Mm. And and there's something kind of fascinating there. Do you remember, maybe you don't know this, Elizabeth Warren wrote a book called The Two Income Trap. Have you ever seen her sort of evolution to be sort of a, a wild feminist from where she used to live in her, her mental state?
1: To be completely honest. I haven't paid too much attention to her because she just sounds like a vapid, screaming old woman at this point. Who- yeah, she does. Yeah. <laughs> so I haven't read that, um, but I am aware of of what she talks about. Yeah.
0: So, so let me let me throw this into your lexicon because you might find this fascinating. Not so much because she's a great thought leader. I don't much care for Elizabeth Warren either. Um, uh, and she's got that like, I'm gonna get me a beer or whatever those like weird videos of her just trying to be a, her person. She's trying so hard to be a person, right? Yeah, she's, so more like, she's more like a lizard person, I'm sure. But but she she didn't used to be loony. Her party has actually sort of run off and she's followed that. Like so many women her, her age have decided that that's where the power structure is. So they're chasing that power. She used to advocate on behalf of a two income trap, which is to say that men and women both working in the workplace would end up in a worse position because rather than relying on one income and what we would call in the military, a single point of failure. If you fail as a man and you're in the workplace, there's the potential that your cottage industry, you talked about taking the work out of the house, the cottage industry would be able to back you up. Maybe your wife has a sewing business. Maybe your wife makes um, brownies and sells them at a bake sale. I don't know, like whatever it is, maybe the woman that works at home, maybe maybe she's a counselor like my wife and she works part-time and she keeps that. So maybe she has that ability. My wife doesn't work right now other than taking care of kids, but if she did, so, she would she would she would work as a counselor because that's what her degree was in. And so if she were to go do that, she could theoretically supplement that that point of failure that I might have mm. and be able to keep us floating. But what we've done, according to Elizabeth Warren, this is the fear she saw going back to like the early 2000s, maybe 2002, probably about the time you were born. Uh, we'd have to see when that actual book was written. But what she said was, is that if men and women both compete um, and they both put their incomes into the market, you're going to have two incomes worth of competition for things like childcare, Mm. for things like homes, for things like schooling, private education, so on. And you're going to bump those prices all the way up to the Uh point where now it's not one income that you're competing, it's two. So a guy like me who only has one income... I'm now competing against double income if I want to put my kids into private schools or to buy houses or everything else. And it's going to make it worse for everybody. And if one of those two fails, the mom or the dad has a problem. Now you've lost 50% or maybe you have lost 30% of your income and there's no one to make it up. Right? So this was the two income track that Elizabeth Warren actually used to know about A lot of that sounds like it goes back to the industrial revolution. What you're saying, that's just fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, it really does. Because if you just put, you know, 50% more people in the workforce, then you're going to have a lot more labor to go around. Therefore, prices are not or labor and and what people can make. The prices are not going to go up like wages have not gone up. And obviously you have inflation and you have taxes and you have all the macroeconomics competing, for example, like um, a minimum wage proportional proportional to inflation from like 100 years ago should be $55, Uh, but it's obviously not because just that's how the dollar is and it's based on debt and it's based on nothing <laughs> at this point. So, yeah. And I think wages haven't grown for so long because of obviously the macroeconomics of it, but because there's so much more labor to go around and Essentially, when feminism adopted Marxism as the framework in which they thought it came along with the consequences of hyper almost capitalism saying, you know what? A woman's value is not the fact that she brings life into the world, that she's a culture creator, that she's beautiful, all the things. It said, no, a woman's value is her productivity as well, because Americans, while we love the individualism we have, you know, hyper individualism is not great either. And so if we continue pushing the idea that productivity is on an individual level based on how much I'm um, sorry, value is on an individual level based on how much productivity you have. And then you have a bunch of women into the workforce, then you're, you were in the situation that we're in. And I'm really worried for Generation Z because not everyone, generational wealth isn't really a thing in America. It's not really a thing all around the world and in the West generally anymore, but how, like we're screwed all the land has pretty much been bought up rent is extremely expensive food is expensive how is anyone in my generation going to be able to get ahead outside of having super big entrepreneurial dreams or you know, really fancy white collar jobs, like being a lawyer or being a doctor, which take almost, you know, $500,000 to be able to just to practice law or to be a doctor. So it's just like the cost of entry so high now that I just don't know how my generation is going to get ahead. And again, I don't think the. The fix for this necessarily is taking all women out of the workforce. That's not practical. I wouldn't want to put a bunch of women out of work just to accomplish my anti-feminist goals. But our generation, Gen Z, we have a very serious conversation about like, how in the world are we going to be able to do this if two incomes is completely the norm, but nobody's making the same amount of money and prices keep going up?
0: And, and women don't seem to be any happier because of it, at least when we look down the line of the 50, 60, seven year old feminists who may or may not die in their apartment alone and have their cats eat their face kind of thing, right? I mean, that was always the fear when I was a kid that people would talk about, oh, you don't want to end up alone right. and, have your, and have your cats eating you. Like the crazy cat lady sort of stigma, it's yes. still there. It's still it, there. And and it's real because there are some really angry. Do you think some women that are in that age bracket, the 50s through the 70s, maybe even the the early 80s, are pushing this because they're vindictive and they feel like they got conned and they want your generation to eat it too? have some of that
1: yeah no that's such a good point and i think there's a lot of truth to that because misery loves company more than anything else and so if you're miserable and have been tricked and you bought into a scam for your whole entire life and you have no one around you you have no children you have no husband uh, you have nothing to pour your energy in that natural want to give that women have what are you going to do you're going to turn into a sour bitter old person who is miserable and has been eaten and eaten up and chewed up and spit out by the world. And so of course you're going to want to have people buy into it. Now, there obviously are many stories that I've seen uh, many women who are like, yeah, man, I bought into that feminist lie. And that is, it is not good. Women I've known personally stories published as op-eds and editorial, uh, opinion pieces around the news. Like you'll occasionally see a story pop up of, yeah, I really regret the decisions that I made because of feminism. But, um, until women decide to really wake up and see that this is such a rotten deal for them. And it's such a scam, then, you know, they're just going to con- continue to do it because all our older women are telling us, no, 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 it's the best thing that you could do. I love the fact that I'm uh, an executive assistant to this CEO. I'm submitting to another man outside of submitting to my husband. In fact, I divorced my husband and got half of his land. Anyway, it's great.
0: Gross, right?
1: So gross. It's
0: really gross. Um, it I, I do feel like there's an awakening, though, that's happening, that women are starting to look at it and think they got a raw deal. I heard people like Brett Cooper the other day say that sort of thing. She's just like, you know, we're sort of programmed to do something very different, and and we're fighting against our nature. She's very young. You're pretty young. You've got some pretty advanced ideas compared to what, uh, you know, it took my wife years. We didn't figure this out thing out until we were in our 30s. And you seem really ahead of the curve are there people in your age bracket that are starting to look and go like maybe you guys don't have it figured out you don't seem that happy
1: oh yeah no that's it's actually so incredibly true i go to a lot of college campuses and i talk about why feminism is terrible and of course like i have like people with septum piercings and purple hair like in the audience like scowling at me like (laughs) making such angry comments muttering to themselves and i'm like okay but the vast majority of these girls are girls who Put in effort. They dress nice. They're beautiful. They're feminine, and they're like, yeah, like I love the college experience I'm getting. I'm really thankful, but I don't want to have to just work for the rest of my life. That doesn't sound great, but I have to work because I got a pair of these student loans. Because it's not fair to lump that onto a husband, you know, right as soon as you get married. Oh,
0: somebody should have told my wife that I I helped we paid for her master's together.
1: See, that's the thing I know. I didn't it's even... supposed
0: to be done. That's what you do. You buy into the whole thing. Who cares?
1: Yeah, you buy into all of it. And yeah, I didn't go to college. So I'm, I'm hoping that um... way
0: ahead of the curve. I don't think my kids are going to go either. I mean, that's 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 the natural. So here's the fun thing, right? Because we're seeing yeah. this happening right now. You're actually sort of in the maelstrom uh, and your and your age bracket is in the maelstrom of people making that turn. When I was a kid, if you didn't go to college, you were going to be a failure. That was okay. assured. Right. right, and there's a big amount of money that you were going to be, uh, you are going to be missing out on. My wife's, I think we paid twenty five or thirty thousand dollars for her master's at the end of it. I know I ended up paying, I don't know, something like that, ten or fifteen thousand dollars for my undergraduate degree. That wouldn't even get you a year right now in most state schools.
1: Seriously, people
0: your age bracket. So you're seeing something very different, and it's kind of interesting how you guys are pushing back. I say you guys, but it's you and 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 people that have that awareness like you do, and you're saying. Hey, maybe, maybe college isn't required for everybody. by the way, that's the also the position of all of human history. It used to be just for the elites, right. I don't know why I we think. thought everyone had to have it. why did Why did everyone have to go to college? you think and yeah, what's no,
1: yeah, and I think just because Americans could, and college used to be a sign of wealth and being in a higher class than other people but i think what boomers hate to realize is like class doesn't really exist in america anymore um you have different social groups and you have different levels of income but we don't have that same rigid class system that a lot of people like to harken back to and feel like they're superior because they went to a specific college i mean if you say you went to harvard i'm like okay whatever doesn't affect me. Like you're probably just severely in debt and have a bunch of quirky and kooky ideas. And so, yeah, you're, you, we are really seeing this turn of people saying, yeah, I don't really need that. Mostly because. I mean, it's kind of a supply and demand thing because college, I don't think will ever go away, but. At college is accessible to almost everyone because there's so many scholarships and loans and all these different ways that you can get into college that now it's really a thing that is not actually special. So what's special is you're 21 and have built a six-figure business, like in the case that I have. Um, and so I'm I'm becoming kind of the anomaly outside of like, oh, people parents look at me and they're like, whoa, I don't know really what to do with you because I can't ask you what your degree is and what your internships are. They don't re- exactly know how to deal with me sometimes. But here's another thing. Um, conservatives often have this idea that, well, I don't support college, but like if you're gonna be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer, then you should like really go to college. I think that is the stupidest thing. I mean, I even used to say it. It was it's so stupid. You should go to college and you should, like Michael Knowles says, want to study dusty old books and old people you know, page pages of of philosophy. And you should want to, like, look at old art pieces. That's what higher education should be. It shouldn't be a training ground for you to be able to practice a job. Just like my entry level uh, of practicing, like being a social media manager, that's what I do. Like, I just have to have like a subscription and uh, Final Cut Pro and a subscription to Canva, and then I'm good. Like the entry level is like 400 bucks. But For someone like my boyfriend, who's going to be a lawyer, he's going to have to pay a lot more than 400 bucks to be able to practice the thing that he wants to. I think that law firms, that engineering firms, that um, hospitals and places like that should be the ones providing the training and the standardized training that you get, almost like a trade school. So I, I think it's so silly when people are like, well, if you're going to be a lawyer, doctor or engineer, it's like, no, you should go to college to expand your mind and study old books and classical things and music and things that you can't get anywhere else, aka work experience.
0: I was saying this 20 years ago. This is very interesting to hear from your mouth because I used to think it was so funny. It's it's actually used to be considered an elitist position to say <laughs> that only a few people should go to college. They're the people that can afford leisure, that have money, that have parents with money or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. they go study things that actually have no tangible value, but it's nice that people know them like right. philosophy and Latin and can tell you in the original Greek what Aristotle said about the nature of the universe.
1: Right.
0: Talk about, oh, well, I, I compared Plato and I saw this was the thing and this is the idyllic version. This is what the historical arguments were for and against democracy and oligarchy. You go, oh, very good. I love that. Very nice. Uh, what do you do with that? Nothing. I can't even turn a wrench. I don't even have how to like plumb my house, right? And you're correct. There's something about, do you need your accountant? Do you have an accountant, by the way, that handles your business? Yes. Do you need your accountant to have a discussion with you about Western civilization uh, levels one, two, three, and four that he probably had to take or she had to take going through college? Do you need that Western Civ conversation?
1: No, I don't. Although my accountant is pretty epic and we do have those conversations. Just right. For-
0: <laughs> because they had to go. Maybe that's something that they were interested in. But my accountant, really, if they wanted to get that degree in, in 18 months, I'd be comfortable with that.
1: Yeah. But- It's
0: like competency, know what the law is, make sure that you can count the money right. Your math skills are on point. You don't even need to know how to do complex math. Turns out financial math is not that complicated. So there is an argument for trade school um, and then actually restoring that sort of elite level of education only for the people that really can afford leisure. That'd be Mm -hmm. fun.
1: Yeah, or for people who just really want to pursue that. I mean, I don't know that college should go back to being a completely only a thing for the quote unquote upper classes, because I think that a rigid class system, while it has its benefits, I don't think that's what America has been built on and won't be something that does very well for us because rigid class systems, we've only seen it really be successful in Britain, but that was because of Christianity. So, um, maybe we shouldn't focus on it being just something for the quote unquote elites or the wealthy but we should have it only be focused on expanding the mind going into deeper truths talking about we we say useless things like philosophy but i love philosophy it's very other
0: two you can't understand the world without it we need philosophers it just doesn't it just doesn't pay well, it turns out. You, right. <laughs> you, you may have to be successful. It may have to be a hobby, or you may have to be able to do that as sort of a leisure pursuit because right. you already have some financial abilities. The upside is, is that you're growing up in an internet age when everybody can find the entire collected history of the world totally on their phone. They can walk around with it in their pocket.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it's absolutely true.
0: They can also find pornography and things that uh, sort of destroy women's value in a lot of ways. Does it, do you see that in uh, some of the things that you've been discussing? And do you, guys, do you talk about that at all in college campuses?
1: I have definitely seen it. There are tons and tons of women who attack me from every angle every single day when I say, yeah, OnlyFans is not a good job or a woman shouldn't sleep around or you should not embrace feminism because feminism has the tendency, the awkward tendency to re-objectify women um, when when it comes down to it. Because we're taught now that Cardi B is the most empowered uh should be lauded as the most glorious person ever and i'm like well she's actually just jiggling on the stage like objectifying herself for everyone else's prying eyes and only fans and pornography those industries i believe are exactly the same and they go they do go hand in hand um in terms of what they tell women so we have so many societal forces telling women that uh it's interesting actually let me go back to second wave feminism because second wave feminism was focused on the idea that Women are more than their bodies and their bodies are something that should be only, you know, used for men, but also women should be able to love whoever they want. So you had this like weird tension going on of half the second wave feminists saying, no, we should erase the female body because it has too much power. And then the other half saying, That no, we should just erase all sexual mores and sexual norms and just have free love for everyone. So you had these two movements happening in the kind of the 1960s and 70s. Then then it got to about the the 1990s and the academics types that wanted androgyny, wanted women's bodies to like not be marketed everywhere. They kind of. They kind of got a little bit quieter then and the pop culture spice girls kind of mtv girlies started really taking hold and saying you know what my body gets views so i'm going to use my body in whatever means possible because if my value as a woman is based off of my success and i find a lot of success by doing a Naked music videos and filming pornography or just, you know, making a spectacle of myself, then I'm going to pursue that because that is empowerment and that is um, where my values coming from. So really going into the 2000s with the rise of social media and also the rise of just like, not, I guess, a rise technically, but you have a lot of broken families where girls aren't growing up in a stable environment. They've never been loved and cherished by their dad because the only way that a girl has confidence is because of her dad, 100%. The only way she'll know how to be loved is because of her dad. And so a lot of fatherless homes have these girls who turn out totally crappy and seeking attention and love and admiration in all the wrong places. So they naturally go to TikTok. They naturally go to places like OnlyFans because not only is it giving them instant gratification of getting tons of views or a paycheck every two weeks or something like that, it's also filling the tank that they believe is getting filled with love. But of course we know that OnlyFans is not a way to fill the the love tank in your life. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting how you had two competing ideas of where a woman's body and value comes from in the second wave of feminism, but the one that appeals to men's and women's most basest desires ended up winning out. And now we have 15 year olds who are wearing nothing but eye patches over their boobs on you know, TikTok, flaunting themselves around thinking that their empowerment and their value comes from views.
0: It's, I hadn't thought about it that way. So I, I appreciate the idea that we are tying now the financial value, because if women have to be financially successful, and if that requires them to do something that is promiscuous or non-valuable for their self, they're basically sacrificing themselves. But it, you know, what are the downstream consequences? Also only a very small number of women can be successful in that, <laughs> right? So if you go look at the, the number of women that are making a ton of money on OnlyFans, you know, the, the, the first 20 or 30 are making shocking amounts of money, 11, 15 million. We covered this on my podcast at one point, like millions of dollars per month after the take that the the company gets, which is also making a ton of money. They're the ones who really win. Um, But there's gotta be a lot of people that are also making very little money. Right. And they have all the same risk and exposure and all the same downsides that might happen without the millions of dollars to compensate them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But of course, it's kind of like any multi-level marketing scheme. Like, oh, if you just really work at it, you will and can be successful. And it's like, well, again, w- we we have yet to see a lot and all of these spiritual, emotional, just scars that women are going to have to endure because of this. The ones who are participating in it and also the ones who are not participating in it because you have the people who are acting and then you have the people who are hearing, oh, well, if if she's making a bunch of money on this and she thinks it's okay well then how does that affect me and how does that affect my um my decisions and what i'm thinking about and what i'm validating so you know you have this very loud minority who say i make a million dollars every single month on this it's crazy it's insane it's super easy you can do it too and girls are like well she seems happy and she's making money because since my value is is I have to be successful, I have to make money um femininity has no consequence, and it doesn't even matter anymore then man i'm gonna i'm gonna pursue that too and I, yeah, sex work is real work, and that's the inevitable conclusion of what we have here,
0: which is really scary stuff i think um what what is that um the downstream effects for interpersonal relationships have to be pretty extreme too. And, and your generation is going to sort of deal with it in a bigger way. I'm, I'm happy that you're in a productive relationship that looks like it's going somewhere. That's not necessarily the case where a lot of your uh, your peers, or at least your age bracket peers, are looking at. Most of them are probably in the same same boat that like my wife and I thought, like oh, you got to use your twenties and figure out how to get married maybe when you're thirties. And by that time you're, you're actually old. I can tell you this. I'm like, I have a new baby. I'm 41. I'm old to have a new baby. Cause I'm really tired. <laughs> like I'm, like I'm, I'm a lot more mature than I was when I was a kid, no doubt about it. But I watched one of my friends. One of my buddies actually has kids that are in college right now. And, the, and, and my oldest is six. Wow. So that's the that's the sort of the the flip, right? The cost is is that some of these these your peers are going to be dealing with something very difficult, I think. Um, and and what do those downstream effects look like of, you know, sexualization and and um and devaluing sort of femininity and all this kind of stuff?
1: Yeah. Um. First of all, congratulations on your new baby. That's so exciting. I cannot wait for my time. It'll be amazing when it happens. But it is. oh my goodness, where do we start with the downstream? the, the downstream effects. I mean, let's, I guess we'll start with just the plain romantic relationship. You have men who are addicted to very intense and violent, um, images of pornography or worse. And then, you know, you have men who are experiencing real difficulty in having a connection with someone. I mean, I don't know, I'm not married yet. So you know, this is just what I've been hearing, uh, from guys who are, who are addicted to this kind of stuff. They have a very difficult time connecting with a real woman in real life because she's not an only fans model who has a million dollars every single month to do a bunch of cosmetic work and a bunch of editing to every image or video that she puts out. So you have the devaluing of women, you have men not being able to fully connect with and engage with a real woman who, you know, is in real life and she's not an OnlyFans model. And then you have, um, yeah, you have the desensitization of the, the power that sexual relationship probably has um, on a person's spirit and on their mind and on their body. And so, you know, as a Christian, Protecting your heart is one of the most important things that you can do. It says this, I think in Proverbs 320 or 420. I think it's 320. It's guard your heart above all else. And so I assume you've probably seen Harry Potter. Is that correct? Okay. So I think about it in this way, in terms of how the there are going to be repercussions for women. So through the whole Harry Potter, you know, I, I'm also not one of those who wouldn't watch Harry Potter. I get it with the hyper, really hyper strict people. I'm just not one of those. So the bad guy, Voldemort, essentially the first movie starts out with him, him, like not being him, being like attached to that guy's head or whatever. So it turns out that his soul, Voldemort's soul has been split into a bunch of different places and cast all around the Harry Potter world. And he has to spend eight movies or eight books collecting all of the parts of his soul and putting them back together so that he can like take over the world. I see a woman who sleeps around a lot like Voldemort. She has doled out parts of her soul all around the all around the world to so all these random guys whether it's viewers on only fans or whether it's just casual relation hookup relationships that she's having she's doling out pieces of her soul to all these people but unlike voldemort she ain't gonna be able to go and collect those again because once your soul's gone like you don't have like little totems or little time pieces that you can just go recollect it and magic spells to put it all back together so I'm watching women voluntarily shatter the beauty and the femininity and the purity that they have by seeking love in all the wrong places. And that really is the biggest downstream effect from women um, or for women in regards to this hypersexualized. Um, industry. And then the final thing I'll mention as how it's going to affect women is, you know, a lot of very valiant feminists who maybe hadn't bought into the whole picture of radical feminism and man-hating and not shaving your armpits and things like that, Mm -hmm. who at least appreciated a a woman's value said, you know what? I don't want to be objectified. I just want to have, you know, my life and keep to myself. But unfortunately, now you have girls who are willingly object, re objectifying themselves uh, for money. And so apparently it's not okay if a man is objectifying you on his own accord, but it is okay if you're doing it and objectifying yourself for money. So I'm always like, where's the consistency there? But um, those are just a couple of the consequences for relationships and what my generation is going to face in the future.
0: Yeah, really uncharted territory, it seems like too. So let's talk about fixes because nobody likes to just uh, dwell on the negativity. I think we all see that the world has fallen. We know that we are living in uh, an area that is outside the Garden of Eden and so be it. So how do we exist in this world? What are some of the things uh, that the advocacy that you're doing specifically towards women, but also how you interact with young men kind of explaining to them maybe pitfalls and pathways out of this?
1: Yeah, the first thing I always focus on is just helping women understand their own brains. There is so much of a culture of self-help and understanding yourself and psychology and, you know, Enneagram tests and Myers-Briggs and personality tests. And it comes to a point where it's like, we may know a lot of things but we really don't truly understand ourselves what our prime motivators are what motivates us what drives us as women who are different than men so the first thing i always focus on is i'm like girls you're different than a guy you have different wants you have different needs you have different things that you are attracted to or deterred by you you are just different and isn't it ironic that I'm spending most of my time talking about the difference between men and women? Now it should be so obvious, but as we know with Matt Walsh's documentary, uh, What is a woman, you know we're we're back at the basics. So I spend a whole lot of my time uh, explaining the differences of the wants and needs, um, just kind of unraveling what the feminists have told women for so long. you know, feminism tells women you want a career, you don't want to be married, you don't want a family all you want to be is completely liberated and unchained to a society and you want no responsibility and you wanna have um, no accountability to anybody else. But all of those things are completely false. So I spent a lot of my time rewiring um, how women should perceive themselves, perceive their value and perceive their place in opposed, you know, as, as different from men. So that's the first thing that I focus on. The second thing is, you know, feminism, preaches that it's accomplished two things for women, freedom and happiness. Those are the two main, you know, banners that feminism's like, we've done this for you and you owe your loyalty to us because you're a woman. It's like, well, let's examine and see if feminism has really accomplished those things. Women are not happier today. I mean, literally you can see this in the numbers. There's a study called the, um, decline the paradox of women's declining unhappiness. And it basically examines the self-reported levels of happiness of women from the 1970s until now. And obviously, spoiler alert, women are not happier today for a multitude of reasons. And um, you know, you can see that women are not happy pretty much at all. And then women are technically, I argue, not more free. Um, Yes, we're allowed to vote. Great. Okay. We do that once every four years. And then once every two years, if we're actually dedicated and voting primaries, but like, yeah, we have the right to vote, but at the expense of what everything else, the life of a beautiful woman, a feminine biblical woman who can be free to enjoy her family, to enjoy her husband, to enjoy the life that they can create together, because now she's a slave to the nine to five, um, you know, work week, 40 hour work week, she's a slave to probably half the prescriptive drugs that she's been prescribed. She's probably a slave to birth control and goes completely crazy because that you you should never mess with your hormones, especially by injecting a synthetic hormone into a bioidentical hormone. It's so ridiculous, but they're slaves to their base desires. They're slaves to their, um, they're just worst emotions, no accountability, no nothing. And so, I always try and tell women, I'm like, if you really want freedom and happiness, then there's a different way of receiving it. And then, you know, kind of going and talking about how traditional roles and biblical structure can be able to replenish and replace that. Um, So I guess all of this is summarized in in a message of women, you aren't happy obviously and you know that to be true stop lying to yourself and saying that you are happy and fulfilled by the things that you're doing and guess what we have an alternative and it's better and it's much more fun and you will long term be so much more joyful that you've done that and so i really enjoy this trad wife movement women showing off their beautiful family lives what they do at home if she's baking banana bread or if she's going out with a pretty dress on with her children i think that is going to really inspire a lot of women who think yeah this is a scam and I, I really do want something better. So anyone who is a trad wife and posting content like that, I really encourage you to continue and just keep painting a positive moral vision about how beautiful your life is because that's the thing that essentially is going to win the girls over um, pretty easily coming up against feminism. They just have to be able to really tangibly see the the different life that they could have outside of what feminism has painted for them.
0: I wanna see a movement of trad wives that are like the real trad wives of America, where they're like, I don't have time for makeup. My hair hasn't been washed in two days. My kids are pooping on my clothing. You know, I had a baby spit up on me, but there's nothing more fulfilling. Right. Because, because that's what, for me, it's one way to curate your, your, your life and show everybody. My wife always tells me, she's like, look at these people. They've got all these kids. They got these, like, you know, the animals, they got this thing, they're making butter. This lady does a exactly. like a little podcast. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She has someone else clean her house. She has to pay other people to do stuff. There's no way she's doing all the things that we're doing because we're just treading water Yeah, and you know, good for her for making that kind of money. But if that's what the real world of it is like, bust in your ass, with one other person and it's just you and them against the rest of the world, like it's always been. Yeah, You brought up faith, um, you brought up the uh, the pill. I wanna touch on that a second. There was a funny little moment and I did this on my podcast, I shared it. I actually got copyright infringement from YouTube about it. I, I showed Joe Rogan. And he does this amazing moment where he was like, we don't really fully understand how to make human beings happy. If only there was like a guidebook or a manual that would show us like how to optimize human existence. And he walked right up to it. Yeah. But he couldn't get there.
1: He's so close. He was
0: raised Catholic the way that I was. He was raised with the Bible. He was raised knowing that there was a Christian faith that made people even the most miserable existences. Like human beings have not had it really good for most of their existence but they figured out how to find happiness joe rogan almost got there he was almost there he's got too much money to figure out that the bible's right there in front of him he could just buy one um let's talk about let's talk about abortion and the pill as sort of like the answer uh for feminism and sort of what that that cost looks like you think
1: oh my gosh yes such i can't believe we haven't touched on this already it's just such an important facet of feminism so you know you have feminists asking the question how can we erase any inequality to make women just like men? And eventually, you get them the right to vote, you get the Civil Rights Act, you do all those things, you're eventually going to run into the question of biology. And there is a remarkable and very distinct difference between men and women in terms of biology. As we should know by now, apparently we don't, that you know, the feminists, they, they, they believe, they truly believe that the right to a- abortion, the right to end another person's life, is a fundamental human right because it accomplishes equality and it it simply makes women the exact same as men because any inequality is perceived as the worst evil in the world, and any difference is perceived as equality, which is perceived as the worst the worst thing in the world so you know you you had them run up to biology and say, "Okay, well, fine, we need to be able in the name of equality to eradicate." Women's ability, or, yeah, women's women's privilege of having children. And so that's where birth control, the motivation for creating birth control, while also birth control, was completely a eugenicist um, idea. And Margaret Sanger, who majorly championed it, was also like besties of Hitler. So we can't overlook that fact. And let's talk about the fact that like 85 percent of Planned Parenthoods were put in minority neighborhoods um, with lots of people of color to basically sterilize the black population in America. Because there's a whole uh, documentary called. Oh, I don't remember what it's called, but it's by live action. And you should definitely go watch it if you want to see the completely racist roots of birth control and abortion. They're great, by the way. What?
0: Live action. They're great
1: so good so good always on top of it but i would also like to mention one more thing that isn't it interesting that the legalization of over-the-counter and easy easily accessible birth control happened eight years in eight uh, it happened in eight years and then eight years later abortion was legalized because there was this whole idea that women were just like getting pregnant and having like a bunch of kids and then they had to do like back alley abortions well it's like abortion didn't become legalized until after birth control was widely used. And so you always have to think about like, why is that? But essentially, abortion is the answer to the feminist question of how do we um, erase any distinction between men and women biologically. And the gruesome end answer to that question is just the death of a million children a year.
0: Yeah, they just have to sacrifice all the babies, right? How do you answer women when they say, well, you're just trying to control women's bodies? Because that's the answer they say, if you're a pro-life man. Yeah, of course. They say, well, you're just trying to control women's bodies. I'm like, no, I only want to um kind of guide one woman's body. I don't really care about the rest of you, except I actually like babies. I think they're awesome. Yeah. no would you if you weren't killing them? And, and and if you admit that you're killing babies, which most of them have a hard time, they, they want to change the words like fetus and they want to use this. But how do you get over the, you just want to control women's bodies and tell them how to act?
1: Yeah. Well, I, on the language of it, I, first of all say, do you know what fetus means in Latin? Me as a classically educated person who had to take Latin as the only language credit I ever had fetus literally means offspring or baby. And so if you just like translate it, you know, put it into Google translate and then just press convert, like you'll be fine. You'll understand the actual truth of what is being said. So, I mean, first of all, on the semantic point, we have all the evidence we need because of Latin, but, this is a super fun conversation because, of course, I'm going to go with the traditional, well, it's actually not a woman's body. I am not con- trying to control a woman's body. I'm trying to control the ability of a woman to kill another person. And so this is where they always you know, roll their eyes because, of course, that's the basic talking point, but I always take it a step further. I always say, okay, let's talk about the science. So did you know at the moment of conception, there is a 100% new blueprint of DNA? There is a like distinct piece of DNA that has been created with everything coded into it, uh, eye color, hair color, personality traits, all the things that you need it at the moment of conception. And so I say, okay, so assuming that this DNA is going to continue to grow and get coded, you know, and turn into the person that it's supposed to be, um, what is the difference between me right now and me in the moment of conception when all of my DNA was set out, um, basically just to to unfold. And I say, well, what what is the difference? And the only right answer is time. The difference is 21 or a little bit over that years from moment of conception until me now. So then I I lean in and I say, are you discriminating based on age? Are you being ageist? (laughs) I cannot believe how intolerant you are being against people who are only three months coded into the DNA process. I cannot believe how intolerant you're being. And then you get them to stutter and then use their sputter and then they just run away. So you always have to take that little argument a oh, it's not your body a step further and then turn it back on them and accuse them of being discriminatory in some way because as we know to the left, discrimination is the worst evil of mankind worse than the Holocaust.
0: Everything's worse than the Holocaust. Everything's worse than Hitler, uh, except Hitler. Hitler's the worst.
1: Right, except Hitler. Okay.
0: That's, the, that's the paradox of being a leftist, is that you have to deal with that. It's, uh, it's kind of interesting. I'll have these discussions with my mother-in-law, and she'll actually uh, admit, yes, it's a human being. It's an inconvenient human being, and that's why we have to kill. That's kind of hard to, to run up against, because now we've moved into a place of morality where it's like, oh, well, you're, you're okay with, with child death. Wow. It's just a matter of and and there are people that feel that way and i feel like that once you expose that it's like well we are probably not going to connect on values in this in this world
1: right and well when you're talking to them there's always a third person if you're you're having a a conversation with someone who you get them to admit yeah i don't care about children i want to kill babies you say at that point you're not trying to win over that person you're trying to win over the third person the audience you are trying to win over the person who is watching and basically make yourself the rational person, because if you can't win the person you're arguing over, then you win the audience over and they're going to decide that you win the conversation or win the debate anyway. And so you always need to remember the third person in the room whenever you're engaging in these conversations and highlighting the difference. And here's another just tactical thing that I think conservatives really need to get better at. Um, We for so long have stayed in the realm of of just not using our emotions and i know like facts don't care about your feelings and that's great but we need the pathos okay when they say i'm fine with killing children you need to make sure that you are reacting honestly to the crazy thing that they just said because when we say men can't become women it's like as bad as the first time i drove a car with my mom in the passenger seat it was Oh my gosh, you're going to kill us all. That's the worst thing that's, you know, they react like we're the crazy ones. We're not the crazy ones. And so what we have to do is when they say, yeah, I'm fine with killing children. We need to react. We need to shame them. We need to mock them. We need to marginalize terrible, dangerous ideas. And we need to basically win over the other people with our reaction saying did you really just say that that is crazy so i think if we can start almost weaponizing our reactions because we've we've been so desensitized but it's like think about what they're saying and then react accordingly and they're going to start feeling that social pressure And being like, yeah, maybe my position isn't great based on the way that the audience just reacted to what I just said, Uh, because we know that social pressure is really powerful. And so if we can turn that against them, then we'll have a lot better chances of actually advancing the narrative along with the facts and logic. But that's just a, a. housekeeping point that i would really like to promote a little bit more
0: <laughs> adding a little bit of the pathos to the argument adding a little bit more of that uh reaction which people should be able to see i had one of those moments on social media by the way uh, i think yes. yesterday and and somebody uh, a, a trans person who i believe is a female who who calls herself a male which is very weird as a male because you can't become like me it's not going to happen you and i could not be the same thing i promise you i will always be able to beat you in an armor <laughs> Competition. I don't even want to, but I can. If she, I can just tell you by looking at you. I can. I guarantee it. I will absolutely guarantee it. I bet every penny I have. <laughs> it's it's just the way it works out. And uh and she reacted to me like a female did. She felt very offended and she went off in this emotional. And it was like, I was like, you know who doesn't react like you? Men. Oh men don't. It's just like you can't escape your biology, sister. I know you're trying. You're trying so hard. Um, What are the things that you, do you advise uh, young women sort of the the ways to look for what a successful relationship is going to look like in this post crappy feminist world where we actually kind of go back to the values that make sense? What values are you looking for? and, And do you value in your personal relationship that you're saying, this is what I'm modeling. This is why it works out. And this is how we find it.
1: Yeah. The first and biggest, of course, it's the obvious one. It's faith. I mean, is the person that you're dating equally yoked? Are they actively pursuing a relationship, a very intimate relationship with the Lord? Um, Are they in a state of constantly wanting to grow and improve or are they in a state of, Oh, I'm fine. I'm just coasting. Everything's great and fine. Um, So that's the first thing you need to look out for and, you know, be very serious about that. My, my boyfriend and I, the only disagreement we have is um, essentially when you should baptize children. He's a pedobaptist, which means baptized when they're babies, and I'm a Credo Baptist, which is when they reach salvation, that's when you need to get baptized. And obviously all of that uh, not exactly salvation issues, but you know, we don't disagree on anything else to do with faith. And that really is the foundation of our relationship. So you need to find someone who takes their faith extremely seriously and uses their faith as a vehicle to examine and improve themselves. Because really, marriage, from what I've heard from all the marriage experts, is marriage is just forgiving someone over and over and over and over again. And if you find someone who sits in unforgiveness or you sit in unforgiveness, then you're going to have a rocky marriage and you're not going to be able to improve anything because unforgiveness is the biggest foothold that Satan has in relationships and just in our personal lives for sure. So that's the first thing.
0: I'm gonna add something to that for you so you can add it to your lexicon, you ready? I think if you're doing it right, it's you realizing that you need forgiveness, not forgiving somebody else. Ah. It's whoever asks for forgiveness first wins, always.
1: In the case of my boyfriend, it's definitely him.
0: It It's, it's hard because it, it involves humility.
1: Imagine that.
0: Yeah, go yes, we'll figure. It, but it, but if you think about
1: than I am. <laughs> but,
0: but if you want to look at a Christian principle, it's simply It it always comes down to look for the uh, the plank in your own eye versus the speck in your in your neighbor's or in your case your spouse. Right. So if you can do that, you win. It's really hard. That's why it's one of the things that we all struggle with for our whole lives. Yeah, I'll just tell you that that's my that's my thing. Whenever I know that I did the wrong thing first, and it's very hard for me because I always think I'm right. <laughs> it's it is my nature. I'm very dominant in that way.
1: Yeah, but
0: by doing that, you actually win. Right and uh, and my wife is really good at it too, because she uh, she trained it. She has a marriage and family therapist, she has a master's in it. So she spent a lot of time studying people's mistakes.
1: She sounds absolutely perfect to be yeah. honest She sounds she's amazing.
0: It, it it takes a special kind of woman to deal with certain types of men. It turns out, and it turns out that that's kind of the way that we're meant we're meant to pair up, right? Yeah. Okay. So faith. What I heard for, because I want to broaden this out for people that are not necessarily in a faith tradition, but that's similar values and a similar hope for the future is kind of what, the short way of saying what you just said. Would that make yeah. sense?
1: Yeah. Similar goals and a similar a similar way of dealing with conflict that will come into your marriage, because you know, like you said earlier, it's it's you against the world, like when you're with your spouse, it's team us against everything else that's happening. And if you can't, if you don't have accurate processes to deal with life as it comes at you, and as it's all hitting the fan, then everything is just going to erupt. And people, especially who are more on the passionate side and the yelling side of things who like, you know, maybe are a little a little bit fighting Irish like me.
0: Maybe, maybe inclined towards a little more drama
1: a little bit more drama, Um, you know, that's not going to be something helpful. You need to learn when to disarm and when to put the weapons down and say, okay, who's the enemy here? It's not my spouse. It's not, it's not us against each other. It's, it's really, you know, I would say Satan, but for people who are less,
0: it's the mailman who didn't deliver the package on time, even though I ordered it too late. Right. That's, (laughs) That's exactly. did you see your parents have conflict and, and resolve it in ways that you try to uh, emulate?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I, since I have so many siblings, I've seen them all kind of take that route as well. And, um, yeah, resolve conflict in a way that is patient and God honoring. And I'm still working on it being such a passionate debating kind of person who is a verbal sniper whenever I need to be. So learning self-control over the tongue is really, really an important thing in, in relationships, but yeah. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs>
0: also, you're in a major danger if you plan on uh, marrying a boyfriend who's going to be a lawyer. He's getting formalized training in arguments and and catching you in your own words. So this is going to be interesting for you.
1: Yeah, I don't think he necessarily wants to be a litigator. So I think I'm I'm in the clear a little bit there. But yeah, uh, it's, how,
0: it's how they learn how to how to think. It, my I have a brother who's who thinks that way. He always thinks he's the he's the best debater at this point because it's a different way of looking at the problem. But
1: I'll tell you the the. My boyfriend, he is one of the only people who could actually genuinely beat me in a debate. He's the only person who could ever convince me that gravity is not real. Even though I know he's wrong, he's he is that smart. But um, yeah, so
0: <laughs> he has to use that responsibly then.
1: Right, 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 right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, generally, though, in relationships, It's the similar values. It's how do you deal with conflict and remembering who the enemy is is just a really, really important uh, facet of what to look for if you're a young woman or a young guy who's looking to find the one. Another thing I would say is stop falling for, you know, Ed Sheeran's perfect song or stop falling for these love songs. I've died every day, you know, like the 1000 years or these beautiful, perfect, like, You know in every movie there is a whole life after the i do at the wedding scene after the guy finally got the girl stop making the expectation of your every moment the three minutes of someone else's love song just stop doing it you're going to have unrealistic expectations and that is going to set you up for major failure because having expectations is a dangerous business
0: yeah. I'll tell you this. I wake up every day. I remember listening. I was a love song. I was a sappy love song guy. I love sappy love songs. I don't have a lot of patience for them anymore because I'm a grown up, And I just think like, I just go like, eh, I don't have any, like, that's not how things work. You want to know what love is. It's waking up every single morning and making a conscious decision to, to work with somebody that, uh, you know, that you choose to be with. And that's, that's actually way harder. And it's way more admirable than like, some sort of silly night in shining armor. Although I do really like the moody blues, which is well before your time. It's before my time. But I really like some of their like, you know, uh, you know, just iconic sort of love songs, but they're still silly. They don't make any sense. Which is really, which, right. Once you realize what real love is, it's real love is like um, holding your your wife's hair back because she's sick and she's been, she had food poisoning and and then taking the kids and, and letting her just lay in bed for three days. When you met, um, yeah. yeah, it's a, it's so much uglier. I gave my wife a bracelet when we got married And it just said, from here on out, um, no matter what happens, and on the inside of it says, it's you and me against the world. Nobody else needs to see that part of it, right? That's the part that you agree on. You create that unified front. Um, One of the worst things you'll see is when you see spouses out in public and they're fighting with each other,
1: or
0: or you'll see somebody go and devalue their spouse to a stranger. Right. Nothing worse. There's nothing nothing worse. What are you doing? Right. Yeah, you're you're short-circuiting your own sort of like unified front. I always think that's funny. All right, look into your crystal ball for me you're young you got a lot of life in front of you i hope and this country seems pretty screwed up from my end of it are you hopeful are you optimistic if so why
1: i wish i could be a little bit more hopeful than i am Mm -hmm. about the world generally but being a christian and being a conservative are Idea And our worldview is built off of the idea and the fact that the world is a tragic, fallen, broken, awful place. So in terms of do you have hope for the future of the world? Well, I know it's going to get worse. And I know there's going to be a world war three at some point. And I know that the antichrist is going to reveal himself. And I know that there's going to be the great tribulation and only then after that will Jesus really come back. And I'm not trying to, you know, chalk it all up to escapism because I think that's quite frankly, very annoying when people are just, Oh, well, Jesus will just come back. But I have assurance that in the end he will win. And until that, My calling on a personal level is to release women from the full-on demonic attack of feminism, um, and to help them unravel the lies that they've been steeped in, and the lies that are so easy and pretty to believe. And so, do I have hope for the country? (sighs) (laughs) I I really think America, if if we we don't really start sounding the alarms even more and taking our up our personal lives and, and using those as examples to you know really fight for the truth and fight for good values then we're not we're not going anywhere <laughs> anywhere good so and again with the economy and living conditions for Americans those are rapidly declining and I truly hope that we can get president in here that can maybe have an economy half as good as trump's and quality of life can go up again but um yeah for my personal life i'm having 11 kids i'm gonna be married you know hopefully within the next two three years so i'm good i'm happy i'm excited and you know i have a beautiful community of people who love me i have a huge family and um, couldn't, couldn't be happier personally. So
0: <laughs> I, I like that. I like 11 kids. You got, we got to outbreed these clowns. That's really the case.
1: They're always like killing their own children. I'm like, well, you're making the job real easy over here because have you noticed that the LGBTQ movement doesn't really grow by repopulation. They only grow by recruitment,
0: mm. you just it's,
1: have better marketing efforts.
0: It's a religion of converts. The leftism mm. it's the yeah. only way they get them because they hate babies.
1: I mean, they're not replenishing anything.
0: No. And I also say this, and I think you can appreciate it, uh, you know, just because we know God wins doesn't mean that America wins. If you think that America is God, then you're a leftist because that's what that's what they're about.
1: That's that's good. Yeah, that's really good. Love that.
0: Sad too. sad that that it's like, all right, um, let people know where they can follow you, where they can uh, see more. I know you have a podcast as well that people want to tune into catch some of this uh, uplifting and uh, positive messaging. Where are they going to find it?
1: me saying, no, America has no hope. Yeah. Just find the positive messaging. It's great. I, I mean, you
0: said it with such a smile. It felt like it was very positive to me. I felt fine about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe that's just because I like showing off my nice teeth that my parents paid for the braces for, but who knows? That's it. You can find me on Instagram at it's Lily Kate. You can find me on TikTok as of right now, uh, Lily Kate show. I'm on my fourth account, so I can't promise I'll be around for that much longer, but hopefully you'll be able to find me either way. Um, I'm taking a break from the podcast right now but hopefully have some exciting things coming in the future so just go to my instagram and you can uh, find everything there and you'll definitely find updates on any long form content that i would be blessed to do in the future so thank you for having me on this was so fun and thank you for all your questions and um i'm not gonna say it was the hardest thing i've done today because again i did work out and it was pretty intense but it was there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's always good though. If you set the expectation that high, then everything becomes easy afterwards,
1: right? Ah, so it was just another FBI trick on me. That's probably what it was.
0: Got you good, as they say. Uh Lily Kate, thanks so much for joining us. I really enjoyed it. I hope you come back and talk again when you uh when you're engaged and you have eleven babies.
1: Oh my gosh. Thanks. <laughs>
0: Today's podcast is sponsored in part by Patriot Coolers. You can find them at their website, Patriot coolers, with an S, dot com. You can also find them on social media at Patriot Coolers. Make sure if you order one of these fine products that you tag me as well, because I like seeing them as a gearhead. You guys know I love seeing it. I like retweeting it. I like retruthing it and sharing it. Uh, check out their page for hard sided coolers, soft sided backpacks and carryable coolers. And, of course, the Tumblers, which I've been carrying with me on and off duty since about 2017. They're a great company. They've got a great product. They support our show, and they support disabled veterans. Visit PatriotCoolers.com. Use my promo code Kyle. That's easy to remember. K-Y-L-E. And support a brand that supports what you do. Patriot Coolers out of Houston, Texas, America, is a good company with a great name that you don't mind showing off. Again, PatriotCoolers.com using promo code KYLE, K-Y-L-E, to get 10% off. And shipping over 50 bucks is always free. And we appreciate you supporting those who support our show. And there you have it, folks. You've been listening to The Kyle Seraphin Show, streamed live from Liberty Hill, Texas, every weekday at 0930 Eastern Time. That's 830 here in Texas, America. We really appreciate all of you joining us. We hope that you will share this. You can always join our live chat at rumble.com slash Kyle Seraphin. Again, that's rumble.com slash Kyle And When you're there, give this video a like. We like that little thumbs up, make sure it turns green. It helps move us up on the ranking boards, and we really do appreciate that. Uh, On top of it, we also appreciate it when you give us these five-star reviews. They are fantastic. Do it on Apple. The link is in the description of the show, and we will read them Just like this one here, this is my fave. From old and out of shape, so good. Says, my go-to podcast, exclamation point, that's five stars. Kyle has become my go-to podcast. Great information from someone who truly cares about America. And great guests. Some days, I only have an hour in the car, and Kyle wins out. Appreciate all you're doing, Greg. Greg, no, you know what? Thank you. I don't think you're out of shape. I think you are just uh, getting ready to get back into shape. And we appreciate it. Put it on a, put it in your ears and go for a run with us. Take the Kyle Serafin Show for a run like Steve Friend. You don't have to do 12 miles like that crazy. You could do one. That'd be a good start. Get yourself back in there. We really appreciate you doing it. Uh, folks, share the show. Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio. You name it, we're there. You can follow us on social media at Kyle Serafin. That's just my name. You can follow our producer, Ryan Matta, on Ryan Matta Media on Twitter, or Ryan Matta on Rumble, or on True Social. We will check you out again tomorrow with Friendly Friday. Thanks so much for joining us, and uh, don't forget to check out the merch store before you leave. Let's just do this real quick. Boom, the-suspendables.com, the-suspendables.com. Promo code KYLE, save a couple bucks, buy something from our friend Garrett, support the Suspendables movement, let people know what's going on, just like we did at Mira Lago, wearing that lapel pin bundle. Get three of them for 30 bucks, what a deal. And uh, we're going to release another color or two. So if you're holding off, I will allow it. I will tolerate it. Uh, check them out. Check us out there at the-dispendables.com. Promo code Kyle. Thanks so much for joining us. Folks, we really do appreciate you. We will see you again tomorrow. Have a great day. God bless you. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Seraphin Show, streamed live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays on rumble.com slash Follow Kyle on Twitter and True Social at kileserafin.